Good afternoon, it's Dr. Dan Guerra on this Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, coming to you from the Inland Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Today is 11 January, and the year is 2023. Now, last time we had a metaphysical um, lecture, and I wanted to point a couple of things out before our today's lecture, which is going to get back into osteoarthritis. I'm going to clear up a couple of things just very quickly because this is authentic biochemistry and I want to make sure that everything is clear. So we're talking about hydrogen atoms and we were talking about the abstraction of a hydrogen atom from a prochiral or achiral molecule. And I want you to remind you the hydrogen atom that has lost its its single electron is known as a proton. And that's because when the electron is removed, all that remains is the nucleus of the hydrogen atom. Okay. And of course, it's going to consist of one proton. So that's why it's called that. It's a short, sort of a sloppy way of describing what we mean. So the other reason that I want to bring this up is there's many biochemical reactions that involved breaking bonds. And, and then at the same time you break a bond, you form a new bond. That's particularly important when covalent bonds are broken, and especially when they're broken heterolytically, because then you generate an ion. Okay. So in the system with a carbon hydrogen, bond, the cleavage of that carbon-hydrogen bond will yield, can yield, a carbanion. That's a formal negative charge on the carbon atom now, and a proton. Now, in terms of chemistry, that's a simple Bronsted acid-base reaction. And it's essentially unimolecular because there are two molecules taking part in the ionization step. But another way of looking at it, just to do a little bit more chemistry, and we're going to move on to osteoarthritis, that reaction is actually analogous to an acid-catalyzed nucleophilic substitution. Now, in that case, you have a Lewis acid that pulls off the leaving group. Okay? So um, I think we'll leave it at that. I just want to make sure I clarified um, that carbon-hydrogen bond, particularly in um, achiral or prochiral centers, not in a chiral center. Remember, that's going to be unique substituents around that carbon atom. And I think we'll just leave it at that and move on with our discussion of OA. <clears throat> so I was, I was about ready to generate what I call the qualitative-quantitative judgmental event discussion about OA. And here it is. When you look at cells in joint tissues, they are normally not exposed to that proteolytically activated TGF beta. Remember, that's a cytokine. Um, particularly, that's the case in OA diseased joints. Even in articular cartilage, you get a situation where there is a temporary, okay, 
Now, there's, there's a temporal signature, obviously, where TGF beta is activated during loading, right? But you get a fast and almost immediate inactivation of the activated TGF beta that occurs in the cartilage matrix. So you get a continuous exposure and then removal of elevated concentrations of TGF beta. Now, because um, high levels of TGF beta activate all those different receptors, don't worry, we're going to go through them in detail again today. Um, that you need high concentrations or relatively high concentrations to activate its receptor. The regular exposure of an increase in TGF beta also then subsequently alters chondrocyte activation. So that's why we know that TGF beta has a direct effect on cartilage. And that's why we look at it in osteoarthritis. Okay. Now, let's go some detail here. The, you have a pre, you have preferentially that SMAD158 pathway. Remember, that's a co-adapter protein and the receptor media response that's UGF beta. And when you have SMAD158, you will activate the receptor known as ALK1. Okay. Now, that does not occur in activated, intact, healthy cartilage. So the process isn't so much the TGF beta activation. There could be lesions in that, proteolytic uh, lesions, which will convert the inactive to the active. But the main course of events that we see the difference between a healthy joint and a osteoarthritic joint is the fact that you are generating the SMAD158 pathway. Okay, now th and that is going to lead to inflammation. Okay. So the the changed concentration that results in high levels of TGF beta will drive chondrocytes preferentially when this is a continuous, this is a uh, regular abuse on the system. Okay. And for example, when you age, it's going to lead that chondrocyte to hypertrophy. And that hypertrophy is linked to SMAD158. Hypertrophy is going to lead to fibrosis. The fibrosis is going to lead to inflammation. Okay. Now, due to that altered TGF beta concentration to which those chondrocytes are exposed, the function of the TGF beta actually will change from a cytokine mediated factor that blocks chondrocyte hypertrophy. And now that's signaling through the SMAD23 ALK5 receptor mediated pathway to a factor that facilitates chondrocyte hypertrophy. And remember that's again SMAD158, that co-adapter protein one using SMADs 1, 5, and 8 as co-adapters, and then working through the activation of the ALK1 receptor. Okay. So basically, not only does TGF beta uh, turn from being pro-protective to pro-inflammatory, because you lost the protective component of TGF beta, 
You no longer get any regeneration, even at younger ages. That starts to diminish. So it completely flips the circuit. It turns it off being a protective circuit, TGF-beta through ALK5, to the SMAD2-3, to TGF-beta elevated to the SMAD158 ALK1 receptor-mediated hypertrophy, fibrosis, pro-inflammation. So I want to make that clear. Okay? All right. Now, let's talk about epithelia for a second. The epithelium is composed of highly specialized, diverse cell population. And you see them in many, many, many biological processes. So you could talk about epithelial cells being uh, protective barriers, for example, for the skin or for internally the inner airways, GI tract, mucosal areas, body cavities included, and indeed secretory and glandular tissues. Epithelial cells are front and center. <clears throat> now, beyond that, epithelial cells function between tissues, and, the, and that means a lot of communication between epithelia and circulation. Okay. Now, what kinds of things we're we talking about here? Well, such mechanisms as nutrient absorption into the intestine and gas exchange in the lungs. That's correct to lactogenesis in the mammary gland. Epithelial cells are playing a major role there each time, okay? In fact, that, and now I add back this thing I told you about epithelia being essentially a first line of defense against infection and indeed physical aberrations and insults. What you have is enabling of an exchange of vital components that are in circulation that would be proteins, peptides, lipids, vitamins, as well as potentially um, pathogenic associated molecular patterns, those PAMPs, that can trigger a toll-like receptor and generate, yeah, a pro-inflammatory response. Okay, so the fidelity and the function of the epithelia is a highly surveilled and guarded um, pathway in human tissue. So continual, you might guess from that, epithelia are continually renewed and even repaired. And now, when you think about that being a, a very biologically active system, that should give you no pause to understand that epithelia give rise to almost, well, probably 90% of all cancers. So 90% of human cancers are of epithelial cell origin. So because of that, it's really been well studied. What people want to know is how do epithelial cells become polarized? How do they de-differentiate into a tumorogenic pathway? And how might that um, be uh, exacerbated, become metastatic, right? Now, remember that we're talking about these chondrocytes, and I'm going to tell you now that epithelial cells are involved, okay? Now, let me go on here a little bit more. 
it, there's a lot of evidence in the scientific literature that suggests that tissue fibrosis, which you always hear me say, is basically prolegomena to cancer metastasis. And that is because, and again, if you went back to my lectures and listened to them anywhere in 2019, I talked a lot about this. I probably spent three months on this, talking about an inappropriate reactivation of what's known as the EMT. That's the epithelial mesenchymal transition. Now, what is that exactly? I'll remind you. It's a cellular process where you have basically polarized epithelial cells that are otherwise non-motile transition into highly motile apolar fibroblastoid cells. So EMT, that epithelial mesenchymal transition, is indeed a normal physiological process. And in fact, it's, it's absolutely necessary for something like embryogenesis but also for tissue morphogenesis, particularly in the formation of mesoderm, neural crest, cardiovalve, valve, secondary palate, all those things we're talking about uh, on the first trimester of fetal development very recently. But in adult tissues, EMT is engaged also in appropriate healthy physiology because the uh, epithelial mesenchymal transition is involved in wound epithelia healing, and it facilitates the remodeling and repair in response to local tissue damage at EMT. Even fully differentiated epithelial cells will maintain some dormant embryonic transcriptional program that may be triggered to turn on EMT. And it can be reinitiated in a response to specific biochemical signaling. And one of the signals that turns it on are certain cytokines. And in particular, here's the money part, the pleiotropic cytokine TGF-beta. And remember the name, what TGF-beta stands for, transforming growth factor beta. And we're talking about the EMT pathway, right? Epithelial to mesenchymal transition. So you see how TGF-beta plays a very logical role there. So same kind of cellular and morphological features are observed in cells undergoing, however, pathophysiological EMT. And indeed, that is what underlies a whole host of diseases including chronic inflammatory diseases linked to, say, the gut or to peripheral organs that you get with obesity-linked type 2 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and chronic fibrotic degenerative diseases of the lung, but also degenerative diseases that include fibrosis in the liver and the kidney. Now, considering what I just said, when you get a, um, an aberrant reinitiation of that epithelial to mesenchymal transition, what can occur 
is an acquisition of an invasive and metastatic cellular phenotype. And this is often observed in developing and indeed in progressing carcinomas. That, of course, leads to their dissemination and colonization to distant organ sites and therefore giving full-blown metastatic disease. So what's very common of both the physiological and pathophysiological epithelium zincable transition is the induction by TGF-beta. Okay. So TGF-beta has been given the um, role as a master organized regulator for transdifferentiation in the human body. All right. So now you got that far. Now we're going to get into more detail about the articular cartilage. And we already talked about it, but now I'm going to give you more of a cellular, you know, a, a cytological perspective, okay? So articular cartilage is, of course, absolutely front and center in joint mechanisms and morphology. And to understand articular cartilage, anatomy, and physiology, you have to understand how it's regulated. And to understand how it's regulated, you have to know that articular cartilage, I'm just going to call it AC now, has four biological zones. We mentioned some of these before. Remember that. The deep, the intermediate, and the peripheral. Remember? Now, each, there's one more. Each zone attributes necessary an articular cartilage that is generated to be durable and strong enough to take a load-bearing weight. Okay, so remember, that's what the function of this process is. And what I mean by that is it has to withstand shear and axial forces throughout the extension of the joint. So you have to have metabolism supporting that. And cartilage metabolism in general is a very slow mediated process when you compare it to more other, more biologically active tissues, say something like the cardiac muscle or skeletal muscle, or certainly um, in the central nervous system. Okay. So you get the idea here that we're talking about a system where if you're going to get a defect that generates a pathophysiology, that defect is going to take a while to be generated. So damaging that AC is going to take a while, unless you're an athlete, which is constantly damaging their joints, which occurs. But remember, the younger you are, the more regeneration you have. The older you are, the less regeneration. So basically, there is no real regeneration. It's just fibrosis, right? Okay. So you have metabolic diseases that are linked to joint destruction and inflammation and also nociception. So that's 
that's a result of a defect in healing processes. So because you have inherently slow metabolic rate in the AC, when you damage it and that tissue needs to be repaired via a normal healing mechanism, right? Tissue repair, maybe DNA repair, maybe protein turnover via autophagy. All of that's going to be slowed down in that tissue because it's not a highly biologically active center. So one of the ways to measure that and to measure even what like TGF beta is doing is looking at oxygen tensions in the articular cartilage. Obviously, the more molecular oxygen, the more oxidative phosphorylation. That is the oxidation of NADH and FADH2 through the four complexes of the electron transport chain in the mitochondria of these cells, generating them through the fifth complex, ATP, because you're going to need ATP to do any repair, right? So you get slow metabolism linked to this cartilage. So damage is, is a problem. So eventually what happens is that the chondrocyte defect that's generated by the damage will perpetuate damage by a penetration into that subchondral bone. So disruptions of the layers of the cartilage will cause a collapse of the integrity of the entire joint apparatus as a whole. Okay, so this is a really important aspect of it. Cartilage defects will heal spontaneously, however, in the younger population, but in particular, as long as the defect extends only to this subchondral bone, that's because the repair, repairing uh, tissue that's being loaded in there is what is known as fibrocartilage. And fibrocartilage is obviously less durable and much less smooth than the bone. So there are many, many, many chondral or osteochondrial defects that need to be repaired once the articular cartilage becomes damaged because it's a constant wear and tear, right? All right. So we've already talked about some of the pathomechanics uh, uh, of it. I don't think we need to do that again, but I want to get into a little more detail about this tissue. So damage to what's known as the hyaline cartilage of large joints, and those we're talking, for example, like the knee and the hip, are often um, observed in the elderly. And what are the causes? Well, injury, like falling, or excessive physical stress. What's excessive physical stress? A lot of working out or just playing a lot of sports as you age. Okay. Now, as I said before, there are some genetic predispositions. And all of this can be exacerbated by any kind of autoimmune or systemic inflammatory disease. What is a common systemic inflammatory disease we know about, which I've given lectures on in this um, authentic biochemistry format? 
rheumatoid arthritis. But you also have just in general degenerative joint disease. And that, of course, is osteoarthritis. All right. So when you have degenerative lesions of the articular cartilage, it builds up in the population, say, between 45 to 55 years old, with a median around 50 years old, in about half of the adult population. And again, this is going to be the part of the adult population that comes from two potential patho cohorts, which are otherwise not sharing similar diseases. Now, what are those two cohorts? Again, over 50, 50% 50 of the people over 50 have some kind of degenerating disease to their AC. And when I say some form, that means a certain degree. The people that have been very athletic and very active in their younger years, who persist to be athletic and active in their older years, will enhance osteoarthritis, all things being equal. That's one cohort. The other cohort of patients that the that, um, uh, surgeons and other members of the medical community see show up for, um, for repair and therapy are, of course, the obese and sedentary. Now, why is that? Because, as I said, a very important inflicting, inducing pathophysiology to generate osteoarthritis is an inflammatory status. Obesity leads to a pro-inflammatory system. Okay? So the obese, younger or any age, the highly sports active, physically active people, here we're thinking about like say mountain climbers or long distance runners who continue to do that kind of excessive um, exercise well beyond their middle age, like starting at 45 and continuing on to 50, 55, 60, and, and on after that. So they're going to they're develop osteoarthritis. It's going to become more severe sooner than someone that decreases the amount of excessive exercise, particularly exercise that works with the joints. Okay. All right. So this hyaline articular cartilage has a limited ability for regeneration. And the simplest reason for that is because you have a very small blood supply. Low level of blood circulation and low level of molecular oxygen means a diminished bioenergetics to accommodate significant mechanical stress. Okay? So surgeons are aware of this. Osteopathic surgeons are aware of this. And they're, they're very likely to consult with their patients if they have a regular um, checkup to, to examine whether or not they're in the early stages or the, or the um, prodromal stages, I'll put it, for osteoarthritis in their more active patients or in their patients that uh, have obesity. Uh, and also probably other complications like type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome.
Okay. So you get the idea of uh, where this is quite a large span of people, because many people are active over 50. And unfortunately, we have a tremendous obesity epidemic with somewhere between 60 to 70% of adults are obese. Okay. Not just overweight, they're obese. So you get the idea where this is a very significant issue. Now, mesenchymal stem cells have a high proliferative potential and the ability for self renewal and therefore tissue regeneration. So they become really important for tissue engineering and even some components of so called, parenthetically, gene therapy. So the mesenchymal origin of chondrocytes means that you may well be able to replace damaged chondrocytes by mesenchymal stem cells. So this comes into a new, this is about therapy now. This is a different aspect of the biomedical uh, features we're talking about here. But this will inform us about the disease. And yes, we're going to get right back into the epigenetics. We're almost there. Unfortunately, I'm almost out of time, I think. Let me see. Oh, gosh, yeah. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to stop there. I introduced now mesenchymal stem cells. I want you to think about how I just explained to you about epithelial cells, the transition from epithelial to mesenchymal that can cause fibrosis and then, yeah, cancer. Okay. Along the way, hypertrophy. And I want you to realize that mesenchymal stem cells also can be used potentially to aid in the repair of osteoarthritic diseased joints. Okay. 